Code monkey, get up, get coffee. Code monkey, go to job. Code monkey, have boring meeting with boring manager Rob. Rob say, good monkey, very diligent, but its output drink. Is code not function or elegant? What do code monkey think? Code monkey think maybe manager wanna write goddamn luck and page himself. Code monkey not clean out loud. Code monkey not crazy, just proud. Code monkey like Frito. Code monkey like Tavern Mountain Dew. Code monkey very simple man. Big warm fuzzy secret heart. Code monkey like you. Code monkey like you. Hello and welcome to an episode of Building with Rust, a podcast where we chat with folks who work with and within the Rust programming language. I'm your host, Sean Chen. Today I'm joined by Nick Cameron, who is a principal engineer at Microsoft working on Rust. He's also a former member of the Rust core team. Nick, I'm super excited to have you on the show. How's it going today? Hi. Yeah, good. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. How's your day going? <laughs> <laughs> uh it's going um uh i've uh i've been writing a blog post about rfcs most of the day and doing some processing on the the rust survey so uh it's uh, not been the most exciting day but um but yeah it's good i mean it sounds pretty exciting to me to be honest <laughs> um <laughs> especially the i don't know blog post and rfcs like i think i mean we can get into that more but uh i definitely think more information out there about Rust's RFC process is uh, is good in general. I wanted to start off, as I do with most guests, kind of just talking about your history, specifically in the realm of Rust and kind of how you got to the point where you currently are. So, uh, and I know you've you've also been, I think, involved with Rust for a while now. Could you kind of give a high-level overview of kind of how you got to this point. Uh, sure, yeah. So I, I guess like the interesting kind of like part of the story. So I was working at Mozilla and I was working on Firefox and working from um, Auckland in, in New Zealand where there was a small office at the time and Patrick Walton came to visit. I don't actually remember why, but he gave a talk about this Rust project and you know, I was full-time C++ programming. I was spending a lot of time debugging segvaults. Um, and I was like, this sounds really awesome. And I, and I have a background in programming languages, kind of like my, my PhD days, but I, I, I was pretty kind of like disillusioned at that point being like, none of this kind of like fancy academic stuff is actually going to like help us in industry. And I kind of like moved out of academia to industry. And, but yeah, but like Patrick gave this talk and I was like, wow, this actually sounds really useful and like really practical and is it's exactly like a tool that would be really helpful. So I, I got like really excited about Rust at, at that point. And I I got a bit involved, but I, I didn't have too much time. But like a little while later, I had this amazing opportunity to kind of like transfer to the, to the Rust team. And so that kind of like started my kind of like proper involvement with the project. And so that was, I think, 2014 or thereabouts. It was about a year before 1.0. So um mm. 
uh, I was kind of like involved in that kind of like last push to to, to get to the to the 1.0 release, which is a really interesting time. So I was certainly kind of like not around for like the, the real early days, you know, when like they invented the borrow checker and stuff like this. But I, I got to kind of like be a part of kind of like quite a lot of the, the exciting stuff before 1.0. And yeah, and I did that. Like I was in that job for, I think, about five years. So I started off mostly hacking on the compiler did a little bit more kind of stuff on the language side, then kind of moved to doing more tool stuff. Um, and I think kind of like that's that's really kind of like where I had kind of like my biggest impact then, you know, working on kind of like various kind of like tools and ended up kind of like leading the, the dev tools team and uh, then joined the, the, the core team and ended up doing kind of like more governance-y kind of work a lot. Uh, so yeah, so that was kind of like my, my boss. And then in 2018, I guess I, well, my, 2019, I think like I, I, I left Mozilla and got, um, a job, at PinCap. Um, and I, like, I was, I was enjoying the work at, at Mozilla, but I kind of felt it was kind of time to, to have a change, do something else. And I was getting really interested in database implementation at the time um i i can't even remember how i got into this but like it's a super interesting field and so i i got this job at pink app and it was great because i was like using rust every day and i was like writing tons of code again and kind of like learning loads of new stuff about distributed systems and databases and so forth and uh, I, I stayed on the core team for a while uh, I think I was still able to kind of like contribute in a, in a useful way but kind of like as time went by and I dropped the kind of like technical work on rust i was feeling kind of like more and more detached from that and it was definitely kind of like a side gig compared to kind of like my day job and and i don't think that that's or for me at least that is not an optimal kind of like way to be kind of like in a you know the on the on the core team of a of a, of a big project um and also we had a second child and so that seemed like a good time to kind of like call it quits. So I left the course team uh, and I can't even remember the day now, but like a little while ago, like, I guess like two, two years ago, maybe anyway. Um, <laughs> so, so, so yeah. And, um, and then last year I decided it was kind of time for another change. And um, it was a time where kind of various companies were kind of like hiring folks to work on, on Rust again. Um, and I, I landed at Microsoft in the middle of last year on the on a team kind of dedicated to, to kind of like improving rust um and uh and yeah and that's what i'm trying to do nice couple of points you made i wanted to dial back on so you mentioned kind of the timing with when you first started really getting involved with rust was kind of right before 1.0 and getting it ready for that last push and you said that was a very exciting time. So I'd be curious to know kind of what are some of the, what sticks out in your mind as some of the more interesting things you worked on during that time? It's quite a long time ago. So <laughs> that's <laughs> I mean, I fair. Like yeah. the, I, I think kind of like the, the most exciting thing for me was just being part of that like whole process. Um, and I think, you know, there were some really kind of like big changes happening there. And to be honest, I wasn't kind of like a part of a, of a lot of them. Like a lot of it was the kind of the reform of the standard library that, that Aaron um, did and kind of like adding kind of like associated types to the language was probably one of the only large 
language changes but it was i don't know like the the project was was small enough that without being like directly involved i was still kind of felt involved with all that work that was going on um and i and i might be wrong about the timing but i think that the the kind of most significant things that i was involved in kind of like pre 1.0 was the work around dynamically sized types um so so yeah like nico and i and 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 other folks kind of like worked out the um the design and implementation to to kind of make that work and that that felt really kind of like one of the the kind of like last pieces in the puzzle to make things like uh strings and and vex and slices all work kind of like nicely together and and unfortunately that's still kind of a kind of like a bit of a rough edge in rust i think kind of like all these years later but that's kind of a different topic that's interesting that you say that actually about the dynamically sized types being a rough edge. Um, I was actually curious then, do you have things that you would change about it now in retrospect to kind of polish it up a bit? That That's kind of a difficult question. I think that, you know, if we were doing it all over again, there are definitely like different ways to do it that might end up better. But with the kind of constraints of backwards compatibility, I'm not sure like how much one could kind of like fundamentally change. I think there are still things that we can kind of like improve, like kind of creating, if you're making like your own struct and it has like a kind of like an unsized field in it and you want to kind of like uh, use that in the, in the, like with the same flexibility as say like a, a string slice, like you quickly kind of like, like you write the, the initial thing and it looks like it's working really nicely. Right. And it, it's not kind of like common rust code or anything, but it, it, it comes together, but you very quickly kind of like, um, run into cliffs where it just kind of like stops working, like, um, around stuff like kind of like the borrow trait, like if you're trying to make it work with hash maps or whatever i think there's like a lot of rough edges that could probably be be polished off a lot better um i mean one thing i hit like literally yesterday is the way that you kind of like coerce kind of like the the sized version of a type into an unsized one right so so it's it's an implicit coercion which is also kind of a rough edge in 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 the rust language just in general so say you've got like a, a fixed length array and you want to convert that into a slice well you just say like let x and then give it an explicit type equal the fixed length array where the explicit type is the uh, sorry a reference to an, a, a fixed length array um and then the explicit type is the dynamically sized slice type and it works great okay but the trouble is this isn't very composable because if you've got if you then want to make an array of slices there's no way to make each element of the, the array dynamically sized from the kind of like statically sized literal. You've literally got to like write out kind of like however many let expressions to make this work. And this should work with type description, but this is still kind of like unstable as it has been for however it's like seven or eight years now. Um, and again, type description kind of a little rough around the edges still. But even with type description, I believe that works for... For, for trait objects, but it doesn't work for slices. <laughs> so you mm. can't even use like type description to do it. So even if you're willing to use an unstable feature, you can't do it. Um, and somebody on Zulip pointed out this kind of like neat little hack in that you can use the identity function, um, which I didn't even know existed, but it's in the standard library and it does nothing. 
Um, it just mm -hmm. kind of <laughs> lets you write uh, an explicit type using the Turbofish operator. But this is kind of deeply unsatisfactory, <laughs> really. Um, hmm. So that's just kind of like one kind of like little example of where, the, where this kind of like feature is a little bit unergonomic. Gotcha. That makes some sense. But yeah, it was... Uh... This would be much easier to kind of like explain if I had kind of like a, a whiteboard rather than having to say it, right? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely fair. Uh, the uh, perils of the pure audio format. Right. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, one other thing you mentioned about kind of your history that I was curious to hear more about is, I don't know if you could speak a little bit to kind of like why you started kind of um, I don't remember if the word you used was like disillusioned with working on the core team and then kind of like made that transition out of it. But I was kind of curious if you could speak a little to like what kind of contributed to that feeling and ultimately led you to move on from core team work. As you also mentioned, you know, it, it had become like a less technical role and kind of like, why do you think that happened? Uh, sure. So I didn't use disillusioned. And I think that's a pretty kind of like negative kind of like framing of it. And I sorry, what 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 word would you use instead? I can't actually remember the the exact word. I mean, so I will I will try and kind of like explain in in more than one word why I kind of like sure. shifted away from it. And I so well, so there's a, there's kind of like a lot to unpack in your question, I guess. So I, so I think kind of like the first thing to say is like. I, when I say kind of like I, I drifted from doing kind of like technical work to, to governance work, like I don't mean that negatively. I think kind of like governance work is really important. Oh, I agree. And it's something that I kind of on a good day even enjoy. So like, you know, I, I certainly felt kind of like happy to be doing technical work again when I when I was doing my new job. But like I, um, I the governance work is, um, you know, equally important. And I think kind of like the... The, the role of the core team is not to do kind of like technical work or to even kind of like lead technical work in, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Kind of like governance is the role of the core team. And I think that's something of kind of like a misconception. And I think this kind of, maybe kind of like core team is a bad name. Well, I definitely think core team is a bad name, to be honest. It kind of like implies that these are the folk doing the kind of the, the core work, which is, you know, arguably the technical work on a project. And that's not what the, the Rust core team do. Like they're, they're a team for like governance and, and leadership. And that is nearly entirely non-technical. But anyway, to, to talk more about like my personal experience. So like there there's a few factors for why I left. Like the, the obvious one is like, I just had a lot less time when I, or I knew I would have a lot less time when my <laughs> my, 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 my daughter was born. Um, mm -hmm. The second is that like Pink App were, were very generous in letting me work on core teams work like on company time, but it was still definitely kind of like a secondary focus for me. And for like I I think kind of like being on the core team is a role that demands kind of it to be your primary focus and. You know, there are certainly jobs where, you know, it may not be your day to day, but it can still be a primary focus. But for me personally, I couldn't make that balance work. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I felt that I wasn't kind of like doing justice to the kind of like demands of, of the role, I guess. And then another aspect is like, although kind of like 
it's a governance role i felt that like the way that i worked like i brought a lot of the kind of like lessons and experience from the technical work that i did um and that informs kind of like the the governance work that i did and being kind of like day to day involved with the community um and you know lots of people doing other technical work was was really important to how i worked as like somebody on the core team now when i kind of like stepped away from that work you know i i that kept me going for a while like the experience i had but like i eventually felt kind of like kind of too detached from the actual kind of like day to day work of the project to to feel that i could do kind of like my my best work kind of on the core team so that that's that's mm. kind of why and and i should i should say as well like another major reason is i think that it's it's important to kind of like move on especially from kind of like leadership shit positions like this like um you know it's it's important to make space for others and especially if you're in a situation like i i feel like i was where i was kind of like maybe not able to give like my best work into it it's important to make space for others so others in the project can can learn and grow and you don't have kind of like a you know a tiny bus factor and you you get different kind of like people's experiences and and so forth yeah that makes a lot of sense cool uh, let's move on to, I wanted to kind of talk a bit about some of the initiatives you're currently working on. So you mentioned, uh, at the very beginning, the annual survey, uh, which I think I just read a blog post about on the, the Rust blog. So that was, that was pretty cool to see, but it also makes me feel like I don't think we need to devote much time to talk about it. So I'll just kind of name drop that and, uh, talk about some other stuff. I think, Foremost in in my mind, I don't know if this is uh, foremost in your mind, but the uh, portable and interoperable async initiative uh, seems to be kind of the the work you're most focusing on. But you know, I've I've my perspective is just kind of like from looking at your your blog posts and stuff, and that's pretty much the only window I have into it. So, uh, but that does seem to be kind of at least on your 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 website where you write the most about async stuff and you kind of muse about how to make Rust's async story more cohesive, I suppose. Would you kind of agree with that? Yeah, it's it's definitely kind of like my, my technical focus at the moment. So yeah, so the there is kind of like this larger kind of like initiative to to improve async programming in Rust. And I'll I'll talk a little bit about that generally, I guess. It might be helpful for, for people who are not kind of reading every single blog post to <laughs> have the, the content. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so async programming is something that's been in development, you know, like since since 1.0 or before, depending on how you count it, but kind of like um, really kind of like came to fruition with the kind of stabilization of the async await syntax. And I think it's really important for Rust because it's important for a lot of the domains where Rust is a really good fit. So kind of networking, distributed systems, cloud infrastructure, uh, web backends, um, all, all these kind of areas often want to be, to be able to do like asynchronous um, IO. So, so Rust has kind of like a pretty good async programming story uh, in the kind of like we we have the stable async await syntax um, and there are some amazing kind of like libraries like Tokyo and async std for doing asynchronous IO and 
and, and to be around towns. But honestly, it's it's kind of like a huge area of the of the programming language, and it still needs like an awful lot of work. And so there is kind of like a um, an initiative at the moment to kind of like improve async programming in Rust and. There's a fair few people looking at kind of like different angles, like being able to have async um, functions everywhere. So, for example, in in traits and async closures and so on. Um, looking at um, async iterators, which were we previously called streams, and generators as well. And the the area that I'm uh, looking at, which is about portability and interoperability. And basically what that means is we made um, a design decision in Rust some time ago that we would have kind of like the infrastructure um, for, for, for doing async programming in, in the language and the standard library. So the future trait is in the, in the standard library. There's an async keyword and a wait keyword in the language. But you can't actually write an async program with no dependencies and just run it. Okay, you you need a third party runtime, mm-hmm. and this is kind of like an interesting design decision with with many trade offs. One of the kind of like good points is it lets kind of like folk implement kind of like really great runtimes like outside of the project, and this can be very kind of like dynamic, and these can be kind of like general purpose, or they can be like specific, and it means that if you're you know, writing the right kind of project, you can write your own runtime for it very easily, which is tailored to your specific needs. Um, and in between those two extremes, there are also kind of like runtimes that are general purpose um, rather than single project ones, but they, you know, they they are targeting kind of like a niche, like embedded development or file IO using IOU ring or, or what have you. Anyway, so so this this has good points, but it also has bad points. And like some of the bad points are that it's very difficult to like migrate, right? Like so you might start off with a general purpose runtime, but decide that what you actually need is one of the specialist runtime and you want to change, or maybe you got the the performance characteristics kind of like wrong when you were doing your your initial planning and a different runtime would have been better, um, or you decide to write your own. Um, and this is really difficult because it turns out that the the runtime doesn't just define like how the um, your your tasks get scheduled essentially, or just kind of like you know turning the wheel on the the async IO, but like it defines a whole ecosystem of kind of libraries. Essentially, each runtime has its own kind of like async standard library, and then kind of like third party, I guess, fourth party crates, you know, end up that you would like to be able to use with any runtime end up being tied to a kind of particular runtime for, for, for irritating reasons that shouldn't really exist, right? Like it, it turns out that you don't need to be tied to the concretes of a, of a runtime, but you do need to have timeouts and the, the utility functions for doing timeouts are distributed with runtimes. And so you end up kind of with your, you know, either you have this like nightmare web of cargo features to support multiple runtimes, or your library is tied to, to one runtime. So, so you end up with like not just separate runtimes, but separate ecosystems. And this is kind of pretty bad for, for for Rust, I think. And secondly, it's really confusing for beginners, right? Like, you know, async programming is complicated enough to learn without, you know, having to understand that 
the you know what a runtime is like why do you care you just want this async function you wrote to run and now you have to know what a runtime is and then you have to choose one and kind of like add it to your project and stuff like this sucks so yeah so interoperability and portability is basically about fixing these problems and it's difficult and i doubt we'll ever get to a situation that is as pleasant as in a language like javascript or c sharp where you just have the runtime built into the language but i'm definitely sure that we can do a whole lot better than what we have at the moment um which is very suboptimal i think that's interesting um one thing you mentioned earlier on was wanting to for example add was async associated functions uh or sorry associated to yeah, no, or yeah, you said, um, adding um async functions to traits right so doing stuff like that as well as uh, enabling async iterators and it's interesting because i think at that point like if that becomes pretty baked into rust i imagine at that point then it's almost like well pretty much for any kind of basic rust project and again this is assuming those features become like very core to the language then i i, I could see a situation where you basically cannot get away with writing rust without a runtime at which point you might as well kind of like have a default runtime just to handle these if that makes sense yeah i i that's a good question i mean like i mean i think it's an interesting question as to whether like asynchronous programming is is fundamentally more difficult than than synchronous programming because it certainly kind of like feels that way but like I'm honestly not sure whether it whether it ought to be whether there's kind of like reasonable kind of like technical or sorry fundamental technical reasons why it it should be that can't be worked around. So so I'm not sure whether kind of like we'll we'll ever get to the situation where async is kind of like the the, the default rather than kind of just using threads, which mm -hmm. you know currently certainly it's a lot easier to to just use threads in most circumstances and for a lot of programs the performance characteristics of threads are as good or better than than using async anyway right uh so so so, so yeah I'm, I'm not sure whether we'll we'll end up in a, in a world where kind of like async is really kind of like in in every program but certainly as we get towards that i think it's pretty important that this stuff works out of the box and you don't need to kind of deal with the kind of like the friction of having to find a runtime the, this question of kind of like whether you have a default runtime i think is really interesting uh it's it's not a question i have an answer to at the moment like we've we certainly kind of like in the past steered well away from from doing that but you know you could i mean i it seems reasonable that we have kind of like you know a small almost like a toy runtime in the standard library, which lets you kind of like write example programs, lets you get through kind of like tutorials, but that everyone knows when you actually want to write something that's going to run in production, you need to get a, a better better runtime. Or we could just say, well, you know, Tokyo is by far and away the, the most popular runtime out there. It's a really good choice for, you know, a lot of, a lot of users and it's, you know, kind of like, a, a really good general purpose runtime why don't we just package that in the standard library and i think that there would be difficulties in how you would keep that maintained how the the tokyo folk could keep iterating at their own pace without being kind of like tied up in with the slower pace of development of the standard library whether they would want to to give up some level of control over their own project which 
I doubt they would, frankly. So there, there's lots of reasons that's kind of like impractical, but like, you know, you could imagine solutions to these if you if you really wanted to but but that also kind of like seems like a, a solution that is is reasonable like not one that i'm kind of like think is is a road will go down but certainly kind of like one that people have asked for but i mean again at the end of the day even if there was a default runtime kind of like the end goal here with this async initiative is that it would be relatively frictionless to kind of migrate to a different runtime if you deemed it to be kind of appropriate for your use case exactly right? yeah and i i think that with the kind of programming that people do in rust like where you really want absolutely kind of like optimal performance then you're never going to have a kind of one size fits all runtime um and there's always going to be desire to kind of like switch between runtimes or to write your own runtime and we absolutely kind of like want to support that that's a pretty kind of like core constraint so there's actually a point you made in the blog post that you wrote announcing this initiative you said something and i'm kind of paraphrasing the quote here but it went something like uh one of the non-goals for async support in rust standard library is to be minimal uh we don't want something like the futures crate to be a long-term solution and I didn't exactly know what that meant. Like, why would it be a bad idea to have the futures crate be a long-term solution? So there's kind of like the specifics of kind of like the setup with the, the futures crate at the moment. So one, and so let's talk about that, I guess. Like, and I think that this is not an optimal solution because for anybody who wants to do kind of mildly interesting work with with futures you have to bring bring in this kind of like third party crate and you shouldn't have to like at some point it's you know there is stuff that is not general purpose enough to be in in stood but like it's it's basically just friction for the sake for the sake of friction that like the stream trait is in futures rs rather than in in stood i mean it's it's not for the friction for the state of friction so it's because it's kind of like not ready to be kind of like stabilized or, or or what have you but the from a user's perspective it just seems like friction um and so i think kind of like long term we don't want to be in that kind of situation like it should be easy for a user they should you know, you you shouldn't have to pull in crates to use like bits of the language, right? It's like it would be ridiculous to say, you know, I need to pull in this crate to use match expressions. I need mm. to pull in this crate to use closures. If I, you know, if I if I want to use associated types, I need another crate for that, right? Like it, that that's kind of like just ridiculous. And I feel like it's the same way with kind of like async programming as well. You shouldn't have to like pull in like futures RS just to um to do your asynchronous programming like the, the 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 basics should just be in the standard library for 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 you to use like in the same way that we have like a string type in the in the, in the standard library or whatever so yeah again it it's a little interesting to me that again you wrote in the post that it's a non-goal for async support in the standard library to be minimal because it generally seems like when it comes to the folks who are shepherding and kind of designing the standard library, they do try to keep it minimal um, as far as how I understand it. So this it's interesting that 
you're saying this at least for async support it should maybe run a little counter to that philosophy so so i think it's probably worth drilling down on what i meant by minimal actually so i mean i think that like there is minimal in that it should be the kind of like smallest like useful standard library right um and i think that's generally what standard library folks go for right i mean you don't need a hash map in your standard library you don't need to have like a vector in your standard library you don't need to have a string type in your standard library right all you can you can have it like this it's just extremely inconvenient right so it's not like we are actually have like for, for regular rust a truly minimal standard library is is not a goal either but i mean they're certainly not going for the kind of like batteries included approach but it's not kind of like, you know, it's not full on minimal. It's not like C. Right. It's, there's a trade off there. And I think that's, so I think kind of like the minimal that is a non-goal for, for me. And I, sh I should say that this is kind of like my personal kind of like vision for how things should be. It's not like an official kind of goal of the, of, of the async working group or an official goal of like x team or y team whatever else but like but yeah like you could say well it'll be minimal and that we'll just have the future trait and nothing else like that's what we've got at the moment and technically it works so you know that that's technically minimal but i think it's also like extremely inconvenient in the same way that not having like a string type or a hash map would be and so I think kind of like a minimally useful standard library would have kind of like an async iterator trait. It would have like the the basic stuff like utility types for things like timers, traits for, for IO, um, maybe some concrete types for IO, although these are often kind of like tied to the runtime. So it's a bit more complicated than it is for, for synchronous rest. So what I, I'm certainly not saying that it should be batteries included. And I think that is another kind of very practical reason why we wouldn't, you know, do something like include kind of like Tokyo in the standard library. So, so I'm definitely not kind of advocating for a kind of like batteries included approach here, but I am saying that like the, the, the technically minimal thing to the situation where we've got at the moment, that's, that's a non-goal basically. It, it seems like, you know, it should kind of mirror the same footprint as, or I should say the async traits in the standard library should kind of mirror the synchronous analogous, the analogous synchronous traits, I should say, like read and write and, and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think that's kind of definitely the kind of like level of footprint that I think would be ideal. And that, and I mean, I think it's not kind of like going to be one-to-one, -one. like there's just differences. Right. Uh, that, between the two models of programming that mean that it, it it can't be like that like you know we might we might might want to have like an executor or a spawn trait in the standard library and there's no equivalent of that for for synchronous rust on the other hand like it might not be possible to have say like a, a tcp stream an async tcp stream type in the in the standard library because um how that would work is so closely tied to kind of like the underlying runtime i'm not sure if that's actually true that's just kind of like an example of something where it may be kind of like different in the details mm -hmm. and of course with asynchronous programming there's this whole notion of of readiness with pulling your features and things like that and of course not a not a thing in synchronous programming right cool 
Uh, good stuff. So I think let's go ahead and and shelve that particular topic. Um, another one of your your blog posts actually that I really enjoyed reading was uh your Rust in twenty twenty two blog post. So I wanted to touch a bit on some of the stuff you mentioned in there. I think in particular you uh mentioned that it has been somewhat challenging to find your place in the rust ecosystem when you kind of like i guess return back into i guess full-on open source work i don't know if you're spending you know the entirety of your day job on open source work probably not i'm assuming but uh you know more than i guess what you were doing at your previous job but um this was an interesting point to me and and, and i'm assuming certainly you know, a different experience than when you first started getting involved in Rust open source work back when Rust was, you know, pre 1.0. Like, can you speak a little to that particular experience of kind of how you kind of navigated that, that, that challenge? Yeah, sure. So yeah, it's kind of a weird situation really to be kind of like stepping back into a project that you've been away from for like basically three years in that kind of like you have this kind of like weird feeling that you kind of like know it very well but also um, you know everything is very unfamiliar as well right um <laughs> so yeah. so yeah so so that that's kind of interesting like and and it is really like starting from scratch in a way because none of the kind of like projects that are uh you know none of the things that i was was working on uh are things that i've kind of like kept working on like a lot of that stuff was kind of like moved on or has a whole like group of people like doing that work or whatever so there's there were no kind of like obvious things to kind of like step back into into doing uh so yeah so and and i guess as well like I, I feel like I'm most useful like having a kind of quite broad perspective as well. But that means like there's a lot to catch up on. And mm. I, you know, I thought, oh, I'll just spend the first week or two just catching up on what's been happening. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. And honestly, that's taken like six months. <laughs> like I'm sure you're still doing it, right? <laughs> yeah, very much, actually. So, yeah, so, I mean, that's basically, I mean, it, it's kind of just a, an ongoing thing, I guess. But but yeah like it's uh it it took like a lot more more effort than i kind of like expected i guess because like and and i guess this is partly due to 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 rust level of maturity and and just in terms of like the the software engineering right it's a big project like between kind of like the compiler and cargo and other key tools and standard library you know there's like millions of lines of code and and it's like like i say like it's a mature project so like you you know to actually be able to contribute you've got to kind of like understand stuff in quite a lot of depth so so yeah that's that's kind of like been a been a challenge to to kind of like get get back into things and of course like i i'm always kind of like beating myself up because i i i know that like between kind of like learning new stuff and working in new areas and and not being as familiar like i know how fast i can work how what i've done in the past and feel like constantly frustrated that i'm not able to kind of like get you know work at the same pace that you know i was a, a few years ago so so that's that's been kind of like challenging as well so i think well, just to kind of like change gears a little bit on that, because I think like you were asking about like how how you kind of like choose what to work on as well, and I and I mean I I think it's 
there's a lot of factors, right? Like for, for me, I need to work on something that, that's interesting to me because, you know, I, that, that's, that's the only way I can stay kind of like motivated for something in the long term. And uh, a large part of that for me is kind of like being learning something new. And I, and I think that like, you can, even in an area that you've been, you know, you know very well, you can always keep learning. It's incredible, like how deep you can go, right? But kind of like, it's also kind of like refreshing to be in kind of a new area. And, and that's one reason that I've been trying to do kind of like some work that's more like library focused, like the, the, the async work I've been doing rather than kind of like compiler focused, because that's something that's like pretty new for me. And I think kind of like looking at areas, you know, where you can, can have a, a an impact given kind of like the the skills and experience you're, you're bringing so like you know I, i'm i'm not in a position where like i know the compiler or any of the tools and kind of like you know intimate enough detail to kind of like churn out like a really high rate of of, of prs or something like um and i know that to kind of like onboard myself to that level is going to take like a, a lot of time so i would i would rather find kind of areas that, that don't kind of like immediately require that kind of like level of experience with kind of like existing code. And I think it's, you know, I, I, I want to choose an area that's like going to actually be useful for, for the project. And of course for Microsoft, because they're kind of like paying my bills. So, you know, that, that's, that's important too. So kind of like choosing an area that, you know, I mean, um, and async is is really great because I think that's an area that's super important for the project as a whole. Like the the work that like a whole bunch of folk are doing in async um, is really going to push Rust forward and really make a difference for a lot of users. Um, and it's also really important for Microsoft because like a lot of the work that Microsoft are doing with Rust is working with async code, and so we can help a lot of kind of like people internally at Microsoft by working on on async. As you mentioned, you know, you kind of don't work at the pace that you used to, but at the same time, you know, you kind of jumped back into open source work and and decided to kind of to kind of just spearhead this whole, you know, async initiative when I feel like in my mind, if it were me, I would be like, oh, you know, I would feel a lot of imposter syndrome, uh, you know, trying to do something like that, especially like just getting back into it, you know, trying to put myself in your shoes. Um, and just be like, you know, there, there, there would be so many more qualified people, at least certainly much more qualified in, you know, in the technical aspects to be able to, to spearhead something like this. But, you know, you kind of went ahead and kind of grabbed the bull by the horn, so to speak. And, you know, I find that, <laughs> I find that pretty admirable and, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you also felt imposter syndrome and, and probably still do feel imposter syndrome, I imagine, but, you know, I guess you were able to reconcile that, I suppose, which again, I, I find very admirable. Yeah, I, I certainly do. And I think, and, it, and it's interesting because I'm certainly like no expert on async programming. Like I, I, I've done a, a, a fair bit like at, at Pink Atmos recently and messing around with stuff around before, but you know, I've never written a runtime. I've never kind of worked on some of the kind of like, uh, the libraries it still kind of like blow my mind, like that that folk like um, uh, Stepan and Boats have have worked on. So I, uh, you know, I'm I'm constantly even figuring out like the basics of 
stuff like at the fundamentals like epol so i'm definitely not like a an expert on on async but i think and and this is really one reason why the the, the interoperability work kind of like appealed to me is that you know that you don't really like need to come up with brand new stuff it's like there's already too many solutions right um, like yeah. the, the 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 problem is not that we are like looking for for a solution for these things it's that there's too many that are kind of like subtly different and i think kind of the the work here is kind of like listening to people who are experts and looking at the the work that they've done and figuring out like how we can kind of like make this like work together or work in ways that are acceptable for all these different groups of people who have different kind of like constraints and requirements and so forth and you know i, I still feel kind of like imposter syndrome doing that <laughs> to be honest but like at least i kind of like know that like i i have kind of like some skills in, in that area that I can kind of, you know, try and utilize. So, so yeah, I mean, I've, and this is also what makes it really interesting, right? I can, I can work with like folk like, um, like Yosh and Carl from, from, from Tokyo. And I don't know, like all, all the other folk involved, like in the, in the initiative, like uh, Tyler and Nico and Eric and, and so on. And, you know, like, learn like a huge amount from from all these people <laughs> while i'm while i'm working with them and try and kind of like put this stuff together to come up with some some solutions and yeah yeah i i really like how you put that that there's actually just too many solutions and someone needs to kind of like consider them and and figure out what their differences are and kind of figure out how to bridge them so yeah, you know, and and it does make sense that that doesn't necessarily require, you know, the most talented, you know, Rust programmer to to make that happen because, as you said, it's not about technical solutions. This isn't this isn't entirely a technical problem. It's very much a a people. Uh, you know, there's a large people component to it. I suppose. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense, and I like the way you put that. Okay, let's 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 just um let's just talk about kind of the last topic I wanted to to mention here. Something uh quite near and dear to my heart, which I think we've alluded to already. You're a parent, and I recently became a parent, and you know, you you stepped back from open source work in large part because of your growing family. And I I think I'm having some trouble doing that at least reconciling that in my in my mind right like it's very i think this is a a not uncommon problem when when you become certainly you know when you have your first child right like figuring out where your priorities are where they should be and and you know uh changing your lifestyle accordingly you know i imagine for you you know it was probably a much more pronounced change with your first child i'm assuming I haven't had a second child yet, so I don't know. But yeah, so, so the bad news for you, if you're planning on, on doing that, is that it's also an absolutely. I, I'm sure, well. but but yeah. I mean, I, I I'm sure this kind of like goes down in time. I'm sure like the eighth child is not so much harder than the seventh. I mean, but that, like the seventh to help out with the eighth one, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um. Exactly. But yes, yeah, going going from one to two has 
felt surprisingly difficult as mm. well, to be honest. But yeah, like the zero to one is definitely like uh, I, I don't think there's any other change in life quite as, as significant as that. Um, but that's that's a pretty high bar. Yeah. So um, I wanted to kind of hear a bit about you know how do you kind of reconcile or how did how did you kind of reconcile you know these becoming a parent you have to kind of realign your expectations and you know when it comes to to open source work you know most people are are entirely volunteers right and and i don't know i'm having some trouble kind of like rebalancing my expectations for how much i could do and and certainly also like holding myself back from just like jumping onto what looks like cool new initiatives in the rust project that you know i didn't if i didn't have a child i i would totally just kind of like jump on that and be like yes i want to get involved with that but now you know i always have to to kind of catch myself a bit and be like um do i do i really have time for that (laughs) yeah wow so i mean i think like the the first thing i want to say is like like parenting is like a hugely kind of individual experience right like mm-hmm. uh like my experience of parenting is going to be very unlike yours i'm sure which will be very oh, sure. unlike somebody else's like and i mean mm-hmm. never mind the major things like whether you're kind of like a single parent or in a family or you know mm-hmm. who's working and not working and you know whether you know whether you're the mother or father like as as much as like you know, you want you want to do everything you can. Like certainly in the first year, you, you can't breastfeed no matter how how much you'd like to help <laughs> out, right? Um, yep, so I yep. think like you know, I I, I don't want to say like I, I I feel too a bit bad kind of like relying on my own experiences of, as a parent and then giving advice based on that because I know like how different everybody has it. I mean, even down to the kind of like your your own kind of like personal kind of like parenting culture, like it's there's a lot of differences like i think one thing that is universal though is that you have like way less time once you're a parent right um and and that kind of affects what what you can do like i mean and you have to look at kind of like your your priorities and your needs and stuff and i know like you know some people kind of like will will drop down to like working part-time to to, to give themselves more time if they can afford to do that kind of temporarily or permanently or whatever. And, and I think kind of like for, for me, like since I've been a parent, well, so, so I, I've always done the majority of my open work, open source work as part of like my day job, to be honest. Right. And so that's a very privileged position and I'm like extremely lucky to, to do that. But, certainly the kind of like extracurricular open source work that i i did before as a parent i've like cut down on like just hugely um and i mean along with kind of like other kind of you know it's like hobbies and and you know sport and all this kind of fun stuff in life really yeah so so i don't know like so yeah so i i so I, so I feel like I'm in a pretty kind of like unique position there. I mean, so, but like just talking about the kind of like the X, like the, the kind of like the side projects and stuff. I mean, for one, I'm just doing a whole lot less of it. And I, and I try not to feel bad about that. Like, mm-hmm. and that's made it more important for me when I'm picking my, my work work um, that I, you know, that I'm doing to, to make sure that I am, 
you know, that that work by itself is enough to keep me kind of like learning and, and growing um, and to keep me interested and not relying on on being able to kind of like, you know, have extra time to do the kind of like interesting work so that, and at the end of the day. And, you know, I'm also lucky in that kind of like working on the Rust project, there's an awful lot of interesting work to do. And, you know, that's not the same for everyone, but I think kind of like, software engineering in general is a career where you, you you generally have some choice in the work you're doing and you can kind of like pick and choose a bit and um i don't know you have to make a trade-off i guess like maybe you can work on more interesting work that keeps you happier but is work that won't get you promoted so quickly maybe that's a trade-off that's that's worthwhile for some people maybe not for others and and the so and then kind of like yeah so the the side projects that I do do I I, I try to be very like because I used to just sit down and be like right well this is this sounds really cool let's try it out like yeah not really thinking about why I'm doing it not really thinking about where it's gonna go um, mm-hmm. and I find myself being much more kind of like intentional now I'm like well well that's really cool but I know that that's gonna be like a year long yak shave before I get anywhere <laughs> with it um, so <laughs> let's let's save that for my retirement kind of thing <laughs> like um, and instead be like well yeah so this is a, an interesting little project and I could learn something from it and I and I actually find that like I'm like doing kind of like less open source work in that I, I've done a few kind of like side projects, which are so messy and horrible that I'd be embarrassed to even like make the GitHub repo public. Um, but I've kind of like learned stuff from doing it. And I think that's really important. So, so, so I guess that that's a thing or projects where I can see like, this is something that, 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 you know, there's a real kind of like gap and that maybe this is something that will like help a bunch of folk without, kind of having to become a kind of like maintainer of this project for for years and years like that that's another kind of like thing that i would kind of like look out for but yeah i mean i think kind of like at the end of the day it's like you're gonna have a lot less spare time for a few years (laughs) (laughs) only a few years (laughs) well i mean like i guess depends here well, no, I mean, so my, my oldest daughter is kind of nearly five now. And, okay. you know, obviously that's still a lot of effort in a lot of ways, but like she sleeps all night um, nice. <laughs> and uh, she's at school in the day. And, yeah. and yeah, like there's certainly, I, I ruined it obviously by having another one, but like the <laughs> when, when I get to that age, you do have a bit more time again. So, you know, I, I also kind of say myself, this is kind of like temporary and... <laughs> another few years and i'll i'll have a bit more time to kind of like do do some of these projects that i i i I can't do at the moment yeah no that's 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 helpful just just even to hear about you know someone else who has gone through something similar with having to kind of pull back on the amount of open source work and side projects and yak shaving that you used to have time (laughs) for so i i really appreciate that I guess last order of business is if you want to go ahead and kind of plug any social media or, you know, Twitter or your blog or whatever, I want to give you some space to do that. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, like I blog, I'm blogging a lot more right now than I, I think I have kind of like ever before, to be honest. And that's, um, I think ncameron.org slash blog. You'll find it. Uh, yeah, if, we'll if definitely post it like in the that. show notes. And I'm on, on Twitter and as well and i 
kind of i feel like i have like an insightful tweet once a month and maybe a lot of noise <laughs> but if you can tolerate that then then yeah i'm <laughs> I, i'm on twitter for you to follow if you if you want and I, what was the what was the handle yeah that's a good question uh it, <laughs> it, it's it not nrc which is really annoying that's like some kind of weird corporation but um so don't follow nrc but i think it's nick r cameron there's probably some underscores and maybe some dots in there um <laughs> but yeah yeah I, I i will post all of them in the show notes as well as kind of like all of the the blog posts that we mentioned during the show um yeah but definitely i agree uh some really good reads in there and i really enjoy uh reading your stuff i think you pro- you approach everything from you know kind of a learner's perspective which you know I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. It's good to hear that it's uh, appreciated. <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks, Nick. Uh, this is a pleasure. I, it was really insightful to kind of hear about how you're thinking about the async stuff and, and again, to, you know, talk to someone else about parenthood. Uh, in COVID times, I haven't haven't gotten much chance to do that. Most of my friends um, are not parents yet. So uh, I don't have too many people to commiserate with. So <laughs> this was helpful. And we have, in, and, and our child's not old enough to take him to daycare yet. So we haven't met a lot of, you know, parents of kids with the, the with a similar age. So, right. so yeah, this was. Yeah, COVID really kind of puts puts a damper on kind of like meeting other parents. And oh, it just makes it all kind of like harder in general, right? It's uh, no fun. <laughs> yeah, cool. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. It's been a fun chat. That concludes this episode of Building with Rust. The music you heard at the beginning of the episode was performed by Andre Logic Bogus and written by Jonathan Colton. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. You can also email us at buildingwithrust at gmail.com to suggest projects or people in the Rust ecosystem with whom you'd like us to talk to on this podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll see you in the next one.